Welcome to another episode of the At The Barricade podcast. This is a show talking about live music for people who just love going to concerts, shows, and live music events. And today, I am joined by my friend, Aaron. Aaron, how's it going today? I'm doing pretty good. That's good to hear. Now, for those of you listening, my friend Aaron, he's somewhat of a big deal. He's a journalist. He graduated kindergarten. He's been in Playboy magazine. <laughs> he plays drums in a band called Flat Planet. And he's also a part of another group called Narboots, which has come up a time or two on this podcast already. He's toured all over the country. Aaron is a huge advocate for ska music, and he has loved ska music for a very long time. In fact, it's so great that he's even written an entire book defending ska, has a podcast about it, etc. And before we get into any of that, though, I want to ask my icebreaker question. What was the very first concert that you ever went to? Um, my very first concert. First, I just want to point out that um, I wrote for Playboy. I wasn't in Playboy. <laughs> I just want to just want to clarify that. <laughs> um, my first concert I ever went to was uh, to see the band Living Color, and the opening act was King's X, and it was in the San Jose Event Center. Okay, I'm not familiar with either of those acts. So you don't you know like... uh, Living Color? Or no, they you... were so big in the like what was it the late '80s or early '90s? Okay. Well, they had one huge song called "Cult of Personality." So you've probably heard it. It's one of those songs where it's like, oh, I know the song if I heard it, but yeah, yeah. I'm not too familiar with it. Yeah, because I don't think I've ever heard of the. I know the TV show in Living Color with yeah, Jim Carrey, yeah. but I'm not Un- unrelated. But actually, they they kind of happened at the same time, and it seemed like is there a connection? But no. There's like a rock and roll band, basically. Okay, so just standard rock. Yeah, yeah. and that was in San Jose. Yeah, at the I, event center. What is the event center in San Jose like? A big like arena type show, no, or is it kind of like a barricaded show, like a fifteen hundred person venue? So San is, I think it's called the event center, but what it is is that it's like a it's a space that's on San Jose State's campus, and so it holds probably I don't know a few thousand or you know. Somewhere between a thousand and three thousand would be my guess. So it's not a massive venue, but it's definitely not like a club size venue. So because this was at the time when Living Color were, were had their hit pretty big, I think. Okay, and were you just like a kid when you went, or were you like teenager, adult? Like how I was, old were you? Yeah, I was sixteen. I had been wanting to go to concerts for a number of years, but I had a very religious mom who very much was not into me going to concerts, and it took a lot of begging. And then ultimately, it came down to um, my friend and I and his older brother offering to go with us and to be the ride. I lived in Gilroy, so about half hour away from San Jose. My mom was like, all right, so if you know, if Ryan, that's his name, the brother, if he's going, okay, that's fine. But Ryan was like way less responsible than me and my friend who were 16. <laughs> that was like the part that like cracked me up about the whole thing. She's like, oh, he's just older. He's got to be more responsible. Well, he also, little did she know. He was a little bit of that Eddie Haskell sort of vibe where he pretended to adults that he was like responsible, but was like 
when the adults were away, you know, the chaos came out. That's awesome. Yeah, so. <laughs> That's so cool. So you went with just a group of friends to your first show. Yeah. Living Color. Yeah, and King's X were uh, not as big. King's X were an interesting band. I guess you could call them rock and roll as well, but they were kind of a Christian band, but they sort of existed in a weird, like, gray space where they they weren't, like, strictly in that sort of Christian network. But I think a lot of Christian kids knew of that band, but they also... Yeah, like they were on touring with Living Color, for instance, who are not like a part of the Christian scene. So they were, they were, there wasn't, I didn't feel like there was a ton of like in between bands like that that represented themselves as a Christian band and were sort of in Christian stores, but also were not as well. Yeah. Like it seemed like you were either one or the other. Yeah, that's how that, that trend continued through the 90s and even through the 2000s. Uh, a band that did have kind of a lot of mainstream hits that were in both the Christian bookstores and on the radio was like Switchfoot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Switchfoot's a really good one. Have you ever seen Switchfoot live? No, I have not. No. Oh, they're so awesome. I've seen them a few times. They put on quite the show. They're That's really cool. So the, after you went to that first show at 16, was your mom a lot more open to you going to live concerts and stuff like that? And, it was still like a process, you know, like for another another year or two is case by case. So the, what was your second show then following that? I, I, can't, I can't remember the second show. I just remember kind of always pitching shows like, I want to go see this and this. And then she would think about like where it was at and what the venue, she didn't have any real knowledge about any of this, but it was like, I remember one time I went to see the band. Um, it was like fire hose. It was like, Mike. it was like, a, that was a Mike Watt band. It was after Minuteman. He joined this band called fire hose, small F <laughs> big, big I. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're a great band. Actually. Uh, you should check them out. They were playing at the catalyst and because she grew up in Watsonville and the catalyst has been around since forever, forever. She knew of that place as this like hippie haven, and she's like, "You are not going to Catalyst," but you know, I I was like getting myself to go to other venues that were basically the exact same thing. Just you know, she didn't know of them, so she would be a little easier about it. So yeah, it was there was some negotiating for a while, and I don't remember when it, there's it stopped being an issue. But at some point, it was just whatever. I could just do whatever, yeah. Yeah, I kind of had a similar experience with my mom. I I had shows that I wanted to go to, but I also grew up pretty religiously. And it was kind of a lot of work. My first concert was actually at a See What the Pole rally where they were kind of having kids go to their public schools and pray around their flagpoles. They had a touring band come and do the the whole hype up like, hey, we're going to do this tomorrow. Like, so cool. And uh, that band was a band I was already a fan of called Stellar Cart. They were a mm-hmm. Christian pop punk band from the 2000s. I was also 16 when I first went to my very first concert. And then immediately following that up, I asked my mom if I can go see Owl City. And so I got to go see Owl City right yeah. afterwards. And that was really awesome. And my mom went with me to the first few shows that I ended up going to. So she was with me for Stellar Cart. She was with me at Owl City. And she was at, it wasn't my third concert, but she went and took me to see a band called Thousand Foot Crutch. And opening for them was uh, Brian Welsh from Corn. His side project, Love and Death, they were opening. And another band called The Wedding. And they are also one of those kind of like post new metal is kind of what I would call that. Yeah, post new metal bands. And they were all there. And my mom's like, wow, well, that was something, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) She knew that they were all Christian acts, but she was like, oh, this is different. And then after that, she just kind of stopped caring and she just kind of let me go crazy. And that's when I started going to like warp tours. And that's when I started going to like more definitely more secular like concerts, like true and traditional type stuff. That's 
Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, my first actual concert was probably not Living Color. It was like Christian concerts. I guess I don't count those because like... Yeah, because it's like within the church and it's like within like a, a, yeah. a community. Like it's like, it's almost like a worship service. And even though they are kind of concerts, a lot of those are just like, oh, hey, we're here to play the service and then we're out of here. Yeah, and I don't remember being like, I got to go to this. It was like where the where I was with the living color, you know, we're like begging to go, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the exact same way where like tech, if you were to make it real technical, the first few concerts I went to were definitely like worship services. I don't count those at all. Absolutely not. Like I'm trying to remember. I know like Great America. Are you familiar with Great America um, theme park uh, yeah. in Santa Clara? Yeah, I've been there a few times. So there was like Christian days there and like it was like a day once a year where like it was just churches. So I remember going to that a few times and there'd be bands playing all over. There was like three or four different like stage setups, bands from all different um, genres and, and levels and stuff. I don't remember how many bands I saw, but, you know, because you also get to just have access to all the rides, too. I remember seeing uh, Michael W. Smith with DC Talk. Oh, whoa. Opening. That was, but I, I could not stand DC Talk. <laughs> I felt like, and Michael W. Smith, I was so, so on. I just felt it was the corniest thing yeah, to me. I'm as, very familiar as like a, with both As bands. like a 15-year-old, I'm like, this is so corny. <laughs> Those are huge names in the yeah. CCM world. Like, yeah. oh, my goodness. And you get to see them just like at a theme park. <laughs> That's like, so cool, though. DC Talk. I just remember the part that just made me cringe was they had, I mean, I think they did this. So if you've seen them, they've done this because they have two white members and one black member. Mm-hmm. And then they like introduce themselves. One of the white guys is like, I, I, I might be doing this wrong, but it was some, something along the lines of like one, one white guy's like, I'm vanilla. And then the black guy's like, I'm chocolate. And then the, the other white guy, like the main white guy, he's like, I'm a, what did he say? I want to say Oreo, but it's not Oreo. It's some way to say that he's white on the ad, on outside and black on the inside. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I'm Swirl. I'm Swirl. That's what he said. I'm Swirl. You know what's really funny is you don't even have to name the names. And I'm actually going to encourage we don't say the names of DC Talk. But you know what? I know exactly who all the members of DC Talk are. And I know exactly who said what. Yeah. <laughs> so. I know exactly who called themselves Swirl. I know exactly who called themselves Vanilla. That is so funny yeah holy cow yeah my grandparents have told me that they've gone to great america to see like the beach boys and i'm like whoa wait hold on a second you saw the beach boys in the 70s at great america that's insane and that's cool i didn't know that they put on like specific like genre days specific themed event days for music like that i mean i've only just been as like a little kid just going on the rides and stuff i don't know i mean this is when i was like 15 or whatever so i don't know what they do now because they've and they've gone through different ownerships too, so who knows what they're doing now? But yeah, that right. was that was very very popular when I was like a kid and in youth group. Yeah. Man, that is so cool! Like actually, <laughs> like I'm like really taken back. Like, whoa, this is awesome! Oh, that is that is so cool. You are a huge advocate for ska music. Mm-hmm. You absolutely love it. I mean, I mean, you love way more than just ska music. You love all sure. genres, and yeah. I can talk about any genre all day. But the one that we've connected the most on, and the one that you really advertise mostly, is ska music. Reading your book, In Defense of Ska, you mentioned that your very first Ska show was Skink and Pickle, Mm -hmm. correct? Can you just elaborate and tell me about that story, how that all ended up happening, how you ended up getting to the show, or how the events unfolded as you were going to that show, and your thoughts and feelings about it afterwards? Yeah, so this is, um, I don't know exactly how old I was. I know that I was like a senior in high school. I was probably 17, because I think I turned 18 in the summer 
Yeah, I turned 18 in the summer after I graduated. So I was in high school still. There's a venue in, or there was a venue in Santa Clara called One Step Beyond. And it was about, I know it's not. That's so cool. <laughs> You're it's, like, oh, not, no. it's not referencing the Madness song. <laughs> it's a very weird coincidence because it was like an alternative music venue. There used to be like three clubs in the Bay Area that were connected and they were like slightly larger clubs. So they got like good acts. It was One Step Beyond in Santa Clara, the Omni in Oakland and the Stone in San Francisco. And it actually kind of a lot of rock stuff, but you know, you'd get all the big like alternative bands like Ramones or They Might Be Giants. The bands that were sort of at the the last stage of of being a club band, like you know, they're not they haven't quite jumped up beyond the clubs, but they're playing a thousand capacity clubs. That's who are headlining these venues. I don't remember. Somebody told me about Skank and Pickle. I wasn't really. I was really into alternative music in general, and I think like there was this plethora of like funk rock stuff happening in the Bay Area at the time, which was like Primus before they blew up were in that scene. Mr. Bungle, those were like the good bands that were in that scene. But there was other bands who I'm not saying weren't good, but didn't didn't have that success, like Limbo Maniacs or Fungo Mungo. I, one of the members of Fungo Mungo ended up in uh, Three Eyed Blind or uh, Third Eye Blind. Oh, that's cool. And there was Psychofunkopus. There was all these sort of like funk rock bands. And that was a, it was a broad thing too. If you really think about it, how much of funk is really an influence of Primus? I mean, they were really interested in like weird music and progressive rock and residents and all this strange stuff. But yeah, it's their slap bass and it's kind of has a groove to it. So yeah. it's like funk rock, there's, you know? Yeah, there's definitely, you can hear the funk elements in Primus music, but they're definitely not a funk band. Yeah, so that's kind of what that funk scene was like. So there was interesting stuff in it because of that sort of the broadness of it. And I think the ska scene, you know, was sort of overlapped with it because when you think about that time period, it's like, in, and you're thinking about the club level, like not the radio level, there's like metal bands, there's like punk and hardcore bands, and then there's like funk and ska, and those bands are playing like rock and punk too. So, But these are bands that have some elements of like groove or dance to them. They're, they're, they're maybe a little bit more on the uplifting side or the more people come to have fun. So I think, you know, it wasn't uncommon for these funk rock bands and these ska bands to play together. So I was into that scene and, you know, friends would like give me tapes of some of these bands and somebody recommended I see Skank and Pickle. And I don't remember if they totally educated me on the fact that this was a style of music called ska. I don't really know where that part came in. I just know that by the time I'd left that show and gotten their CD, I was like, I understood that this was like a, a style of music genre. I was in on it and I, I wanted more of it. They definitely were not big enough to... They didn't pack a thousand, but you know, they, they probably had like three, 400. I mean, it was fine. You know, it was like a loosely packed venue. Were they headlining that night? Yeah. They headlined one band that opened funny enough was the, the cherry pop and daddies. Oh, okay. They were like, yeah, they were like, yeah, sort of. They were, you know, before they got, before they broke, they were, they were like a fusion band. You know, they played a little bit of ska, a little bit of funk, a little bit of swing. And they were like, I think the second opening band, they weren't that big. You know, they were from, they're from Eugene. So they probably were doing like a weekend tour down to the Bay area. They were not dressed nice. <laughs> they, they, they were just dressed like, you know, like any other like ska or punk band, you know, just shirts and shorts and stuff. And they were crammed on that stage. I do remember there being some swing songs. I kind of liked the swing songs the best of all their stuff, but yeah, they played all of it. I bought their tape and the tape said the daddies. It didn't say. Oh, that's interesting. And I think in I've done a little research. I think they started out as the Cherry Pop and Daddies, and then they were the Daddies, and then they were the Cherry Pop and Daddies again. So I don't. Weird. Yeah, I don't know. That's the full, cool. Yeah, you got a relic, a cassette <laughs> that just says the Daddies. The Daddies. That's so tight. 
So it's Cherry Poppin' Daddies and Skink and Pickle. Yeah, and there's like two or three other bands. I can't remember the other bands, like local bands probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, Skank and Pickle are a local band at this point. I mean, they're right. they're from San Jose, uh, San Francisco, whatever. So mm-hmm. they're like a local band that's kind of getting bigger and bigger. I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of going in with like not really much experience with ska, and I think for a lot of people from my generation, it's like we experienced ska this way, where it was like we went to a live show, we didn't know much about the music, and we kind of just get it all at once, and it's like kind of overwhelming. That's kind of how I remember it. People have read my book and that chapter in particular, and said like I relate to this. You know, I've had that experience too. Like you know, I went to a ska show and became a fan. You know, overnight. That's exactly how it was for me. Just years later. It's funny you mentioned that you were a senior in high school because I was also a senior in high school when I started getting into ska music. I had no idea the genre existed. And a buddy of mine was like, dude, you got to come with me to the show. And I'm like, oh, what is it? He's like, I promise you've never heard of any of these bands before. You just have to come with me. And I said, okay, sounds good because I just love going to live concerts. This was in 2013. It was 2013. And he took me to the Don't Stop Skankin' Tour with opening act to headliner. It was Biebs and Her Moneymakers, Beautiful Bodies, who were just like a rock band, and then Five Iron Frenzy and Real Big Fish headlining. And that show just changed my life. Absolutely. I picked up Five Iron Frenzy's album, The End Is Here. I picked up, and I got all of it signed by every member of the band, which was awesome. I picked up the Real Big Fish album, Candy Coated Fury. That was so cool. And that's what I had on repeat for the next three and a half months. <laughs> oh, so this is after Five Iron Frenzy uh, reformed. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even know they had broken up. I had no idea who they were. And yeah. so I was like, oh, it's so cool you guys are back together. <laughs> Just <laughs> never knowing they broke up in the first place. Uh, but yeah, and they've both quickly become some of my all-time favorite bands. And then it was after that where I'm like, I definitely need more of this. My same friend would say, oh, you're going to Warp Tour? Should go check out Less Than Jake. I'm like, should I listen to them? He's like, no, just go in blind. And then I'm like, cool. I love Less Than Jake now after seeing him live. And that's how it was for a lot of bands. And then I went down the rabbit trail where it's like, cool, getting into the Boston's and then the Aquabats, getting into all those like big headliner, mm-hmm. yeah. headliner style ska bands. And then after that, I dived real deep and started getting into bands like ME330. I don't know. There's so many that I, it's, I'm all... <laughs> The headphones go on, my brain clicks off. <laughs> I can't think of anybody else. But I started getting into a lot of like the, the more underground bands, and ska music's just beautiful like that. And it's cool that same similar experience, just years apart yeah. with two different two different bands. Yeah, because my, um, my Skank and Pickle uh, show was like 1992. So yeah, that's like a pretty significant time difference. Here's a, here's a funny thing that I, I learned, and I actually figured this out I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out, but after I'd already written the book, after I'd already been doing interviews for it, it occurred to me that before I went to that Skank and Pickle show, before I decided that I was a ska fan, before I knew what ska was, I was already a fan of Fishbone and Mr. Bungle. (laughs) They both um, have really... Well, Fishbone is ska. Yes. Well, Fishbone Um, is like... It's such an eclectic mix of everything, though, but they're mainstay is yeah but i I think a lot of people especially in the early 90s were not calling them ska because especially at that time with the reality my surroundings being sort of their main record at that time that was there was not really much ska on that but i had the older albums and i loved the older albums i wasn't like oh this song right here is ska this song is this this you know i wasn't thinking that way until after i had became a ska fan and i think the same thing with mr bungle like if you listen to that first mr bungle record yeah super weird i love that record too Although, but there's straight up ska song, or no, I wouldn't say straight up ska songs, but straight up ska sections. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's also 
when I was really kind of getting into ska, like during my early formative years of ska music, if you will, people were totally recommending like Punk and Drublick by NoFX. And I'm like, oh, cool, ska. And I picked it up and then I listened to it. And I'm like, this isn't ska music. I'm like, this is just punk. And I'm like, I don't like this record. So I kind of like poo-pooed that record for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And people were like, NoFX is a ska band. I'm like, no, they're not a ska band. And it wasn't until after years later when I started finally getting into NoFX. And I'm like, oh, they have ska songs. Yeah. They're a punk band, but they only have them here and there. Here and there, like uh, Bob, I think that's probably my favorite. Yeah, they have that ska breakdown at the end. Super awesome. They have that song, uh, Eat the Meek, which is the full-on ska song. They've got a few others that are kind of splish-splashed around their discography. Yeah. I would I would say Rancid is in that category, too, even though they're one of their biggest songs is a ska song. Yeah. I still think <laughs> of them as a punk band with ska songs. I agree with you on that point. No Effects, Offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, any other, any other that come to mind where that kind of hits, fits that category? Not off the top of my head. Yeah. Those are, I think the big three. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. And it's really cool. It's really interesting to note these bands that are outside of the genre of ska implemented so much into it. And then later on went on to just hate on the genre. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, don't you guys have a ska song? Like, (laughs) I mean, if you're talking about no effects, I think that's just part of fat Mike's thing is to be a hater. So (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. Skink and pickle and just getting into the genre. And it's Mm -hmm. such a cool little community of live music. What is one of the craziest concerts that you've ever been to? Whether you consider craziest, like the band is going insane or they're putting on some sort of insane act or the audience is insane. And you're just like, I can't believe this is really happening. I guess, you know, my, my experiences of, of shows being crazy or at the height of crazy are usually involved ones that I've played. A couple of them come to mind. One of them was a show. So Flat Planet was my ska band I had in the 90s. I think we, we started actually before that Skank and Pickle show, but we weren't playing ska. So I think we started in like 91. We were doing other, you know, we evolved into a ska band after I fell in love with ska. And I think we, I pro- we broke up probably like 95 or 96, something like that. And we did like three tours all the tours we did were about three weeks and I kind of, I kind of started, I booked all the tours. I was using um book your own fucking life is the, the resource that I used to book DIY tours. First tour, I kind of booked us out to like from here to Texas and back. And then I kind of went again, California to like Florida and back. So it was kind of like the Southern thing. And then the third tour I kind of did, didn't go as far as Florida, but kind of went to Texas again and kind of did some, higher up stuff like St. Louis and Colorado. So that was kind of the, the, the path we were taking. So we were kind of, and, and we, I would see like people show up. We played San Antonio every tour and I saw like, you know, more people each time. Like on the second tour, you know, I did my best to book everything in advance, but there's still holes because it's hard to book DIY tours. And so I'm still trying to book shows while on the tour. I have my book your own fucking life with me. I'm going to pay phones because I don't have a cell phone at that point. It's too early. Talking to people at shows. We played the show in, um, I want to say Pensacola, Florida, maybe. Oh, okay. And And actually, that's like the one part of Florida I'm like super duper familiar with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Side story. (laughs) We ate at a, uh, I want to say Hardee's or some kind of fast food place. And uh, there was two guys that were just loud Christian talking in a booth behind us. Well, that's because the uh, Pensacola Christian College is right there. Yeah. Some pretty offensive stuff on their hats. Let's say like, well, I won't say. It involves AIDS and what AIDS does to oh. a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. Just hand drawn on their hats. Just stuff like that. Or, you know, 
we're just like eating our hamburgers. They eventually come over and just start like hardcore preaching at us while we're trying for to eat just our no burgers. reason. And it's funny because like that's <laughs> super irritating, especially as you're trying to eat. Yeah, and it's funny because like half of us, I don't know. I at that point, I still considered myself Christian. I had like I had some misgivings, but I still was going to church. I still was considering myself Christian. I'm not anymore. I'd say like half the band was in that place. And so as they're like doing this, we're like, yeah, we're Christian. And it's like, that didn't mean anything to them because we were like weird looking punks. And they kept like preaching like, oh, you're going to, you know, if you don't ask Jesus in your heart, you're going to go to hell. Like real hard, just hard line. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Anyways. that And so <laughs> then we played this, uh, like a backyard show at someone's house, like a punk show. It was, and I, I remember it being a good show. And there was just some dude there that was hanging out. He really liked us. It started out where he was talking talking to us about dick tricks. He's like, you know, do you know about dick tricks? Yeah, and like not Richard, like no, yeah, penis like penis tricks. And <laughs> I don't. He didn't do any. He didn't do any. But he explained what they were, and they're basically like impressions. I think impressions is a better word. Like like you would wrap your shaft around your wrist, and that would called like a wrist rot, wrist watch. <laughs> yeah, is that kind of thing. <laughs> So he's going on and on. He's from Mississippi. That's part of the story. And we're like, okay, that's pretty weird. And then he's like, my brother, my brother is in still in Mississippi and he books shows. I'm like, oh, that's great. We like need some shows. And he's like, okay, here's the number. Cool. And so I call him and he happens to have a date open for like a date that we need. You know, when we kind of loop back around, we go through like Georgia, then we kind of go back down. It works out. We get this show. It's at some club, which I find out that the the punks in that city had a relationship with where they could book their own shows every once in a while. But it was like a normal kind of club. We get there and like everybody, all the dudes in that town are straight edge, super punk, like tattooed, very, very visibly punk, chip on their shoulder because they live in some small Mississippi town and everyone thinks they're weird and want to tell you and show you dick tricks. What? So we definitely saw some dick tricks while we were there, the ones we had heard about. It was like, you know, you would be like, hey, do you know about dick tricks? And like, even before you had a chance to be like, yes, please show me. It was like you were seeing them like alien brains. That was another one. Alien brains. I was like, if you take your balls and you squeeze them so they expand alien brains. What? I have no words for this at all. That's insane. So uh, and then like the guy who booked the show. Well, hold on. They're doing this in front of you guys. They're just like, yes. I know. Whoa, yeah, you okay. think about it now. You're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> just pulling your penises out. A time before cell phones, before it could be on the internet for sure. Yeah. Wow. One one of the guys was, uh, had a piercing and he did a puppet situation. So that was the only thing that I'm like trying to create. I'm trying as you're saying this, I'm trying to creatively <laughs> come up with one in my brain. And all I'm thinking is getting like a tiny little yellow hat and putting it on the end and calling it like Dick Tracy or something. <laughs> so I remember we were at the, we're at their house. This is happening. The guy who booked the show, he's like a little older. He's a tattoo artist. He's like offering us tattoos on the spot. We're like, I don't think so. And then uh, somebody at that house was like, hey, you guys want some shirts? You guys want some like dickies or whatever? We're going to go get some. We're like, sure. And when they met was that they were going to go to this factory and steal a bunch. What? And so they came back with this huge pile of like random work shirts. And then like they just plopped this pile and we picked through them. I used to have this like really cool jacket that I got from it. Kind of this like work jacket, like kind of a dark blue, and it had the name Dirk like etched <laughs> on it, like it was Dirk's jacket. And I, I just love that. That's awesome, though. Some other members of Flat Planet, they had grabbed like some, just like some more button up work shirts. And some of them, like when we were got like more screen, got more shirts screen, they would like screen that too. That was like leading up to the show. And then so 
before the show started, the guy who put the show on, he's like, just to let you know, this owner, he's like, says no more shows. He's a fucking dick or whatever. Fuck this guy. Uh, we're going to destroy this club tonight. We're like, oh, okay. And is this, is this, uh, this is the manager of the show, the show promoter. He's a promoter. He doesn't like, he doesn't work at the venue. He doesn't work at the venue. And he's not in a band. He's, not in he's a just band. encouraging you guys to destroy. Well, he's not encouraging us. He's letting us know what's going to happen. Oh, were you, you guys were headlining? No, no, we were, the fir- we were the first band, which is okay. good in this particular situation because the plan was to destroy it during the headliners band. Yeah. And the headliner was some L.A. punk band. I cannot remember their name. Like an L- like an L.A. like pop punk band. They had like their hair done well. Like they seemed like they were in it to hit it, you know, in it to like make it. They had an image. They weren't bad or anything, but they were not feeling the vibe. Like, you know, I mean, we were kind of like, we didn't want to be part of a club being destroyed, but we were amused by the strangeness of the whole thing. Yeah. All I can really remember is that we played our set. It felt there was an un, uneasy vibe during the set. People were into it, us, but there was, you could see something brewing. And normally when we play a set, you know, you just throw your, you just throw everything off to the side and then watch the headliner and then collect all your stuff at the end of the night. But that was not our plan that night. Our plan was unload everything outside immediately after we were done playing, so it doesn't get load up, be ready to leave at any moment. We started to watch during the headliner band, this LA pop punk band who just wants to like get a record deal, deal with these like crazy Mississippi punk starting to destroy this club and all our stuff's out. And, and we just, once we saw stuff start to go haywire, we're like, we're out of here. We don't want it. We don't want anything of ours destroyed, and we don't want to be affiliated with. We don't want cops coming and being like, "All you punks." Yeah, you know. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so you just booked it out of there. We got just... out of there. Yeah, we're like, wow. thanks for the show. That is insane. That's probably one of the best stories I've had when I've asked, "What is the craziest concert?" That is awesome. <laughs> At the same time, like, I'm so baffled. I have so like no words, and I'm trying to come up with something. But that's just. <laughs> Wow, that's something else. I mean, that's part of it, you know, that's part of what you get when you do DIY touring or back then anyways. Yeah. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, it definitely was a different time. I've heard some, you know, stories from other people that were around in like the 70s, 80s, 90s punk scene. And I mean, their stories are crazy compared to like how it is today, but nothing like that. That's uh, that's crazy. I do think that like the 90s DIY scene was pretty was pretty cool because by the early 90s, Book Your Own Fucking Life had come out. So I think people in the 80s who were doing like booking their own tours, I think there wasn't really a network the way there was in the 90s. So I think a lot of them were having to call bars and deal with bars. I think the sort of punk network, I mean, there were punk shows. Don't get me wrong. There were punk shows. I mean, Black Flag and all those bands, they really did their best to try to play those sort of shows. But there just wasn't a plethora of them like there became in the 90s. Like in the 90s, with that book and with more bands touring and bands of different genres too, all within the sort of the, the big blanket genre of punk, like ska bands, funk bands, pop punk bands, hardcore bands. So you had, since you had all these bands and all these promoters, you, there were all these unique places to play. And like, there was like a supportive scene at a lot of these cities. Like we would play like skate parks or basements. You, 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 you weren't known in the city cause you hadn't played there. You played there once before, but there was like 50 kids that just went to every show and they were stoked on it. So you just kind of walked into this like pre-existing scene. I'm not sure. And I can't really speak to what happened in the two thousands. I've heard good things from friends who said that, you know, there was a really cool DIY scene. I think like MySpace really helped significantly with connecting people at that point. But for the nineties, mid nineties, it was really good for with, 
with the network that I saw. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. So you just talked about your band Flat Planet, and after you were done with Flat Planet, there was something that happened. I'm not 100% sure, but it doesn't matter. Oh, the, the, why we broke up? I it, <laughs> not, not, Nothing dramatic, just I think, you know, like... It just happens. Yeah, just like, just didn't feel like it's kind of going... For me, because I ended up leaving the band, I just felt like our guitarist had moved, our bass player lost interest. I think that that kind of like lost some momentum and I was kind of not seeing us go anywhere. And I was like, I think, I think it's time for me to move on. So, yeah. le- so leading up to years later, you decided to be a part of a group called Narboots. Yeah. Which is such an interesting, I'm going to call it an art piece. Well, it started <laughs> out as a punk band. Yeah. Yeah. I know Narboots. I've seen pictures that you and uh, Adam have both posted about Narboots and I've listened to the songs that are available online and I've never seen you guys live and I don't know everything that you guys were about as Narboots. Yeah, we haven't played since like 2018 so. Mm-hmm. Narboots was actually it was me and Adam and this other guy named Bob Vielma who people might know as uh, Bob Boso on the Jeff Rosenstock Ska Dream. Okay. He did the he did the rap. Oh, in, okay. in, in uh, Scram. He's an old friend. He used to be in this band called Shinobu. That was probably like his biggest band. They were an Asian man records band. The three of us, Adam, I think like at that time, Adam, like his Adam had played in bands for a while. You know, he did Link 80 and then Link 80 became Dessa. And that just sort of ended up fizzling out. He was friends with this guy named Brian or still is, who has a recording studio class in Oakland, does different things. The recording studio class, he would just get bands to come in on like a Tuesday, play like three songs and people who were in his recording class had to record them. So it was like a slow process, but the band, by volunteering their time, they got a recording of like a couple songs and then they got to keep it. So that was the, that was the deal. That's cool. And so he asked Adam, he's like, is, is your band or are you any band that wants to do this? And Adam was not in a band at the time and he wanted to do it. So he, he reached out to me and Bob and asked if we wanted to like do a recording project and so we got together and we, we, we wrote like three punk songs, just basic, like three piece, like punk songs. Bob, when Bob, Bob wrote some songs, Adam wrote some songs. Adam's like a little bit more like hardcore minded with his, his songwriting and Bob's a bit more pop punk minded. So we did that. We had these three songs shortly after that. And another friend of Adam's re, like reached out to him and said, like, we're playing the show in, in Oakland. It's like a reunion show. It's going to be fun. A lot of old friends. Does your band want to open? He's like, I don't have a band. So anyways, Narboots, like we we wrote like another four songs and so we could open this show. And the, it was like, you know, it was a couple of hundred people, it, you know, it was like just because it was like a friend reunion sort of thing. After that show, I think that was like, so like, hey, we should be a band. So we we were basically a punk band initially, and but that it went off the rails pretty quick. Like <laughs> the second show we did was still basically a punk show. We opened up for... um weird band that Jamie Stewart was in, you know, Jamie Stewart from Shushu. Okay. No, Shushu. I'm not familiar. Okay. Shushu is like this real weird, like art, art rock kind of band. He was, this was, I think it was called my songs, a mess. And so am I, that was the name of the band. It's like a real experimental music. Um, we opened for this. We kind of did our set, our friend, AJ, we asked him to come play synthesizers. We played our songs, but we tried to include these weird, <laughs> like these weird, like, breakdowns i don't know we were just trying to like think of something to do this is our second show <laughs> and then i i don't know we, we played another show or two and then bob we had the show booked in like oakland and bob couldn't make it 
And so Adam and I were like, well, we don't really want to cancel the show. What are we going to do? We we came up with the idea of like taking some songs from this band that Adam and I did. It was right after Flat Planet. It was a real short-lived band called Fashion Police. And it was Fashion Police was all about creating like chaotic shows and just going crazy. But it was kind of like new wave, new wave song style, like the songwriting. So Adam made like synth versions of these songs, like four of them. We both got wigs, like rocker wigs. <laughs> And then we're like, okay, we're going to open the set. Like, this is weird. I don't know the way our brains were. We're going to open the set. We're going to play like doom metal for like 15 minutes. And we're just going to like drag, like really just drag out these songs and just have breakdowns. We we didn't really write anything. We just kind of improvised doom metal songs. And then we're going to, I'm going to hit play on the iPod. It's going to turn into these synth songs. And then we're going to jump off our instruments, throw our wigs off. And we're just going to play these like these synth songs for the second half. It's going to be, and we were all excited about how weird it was going to be that this doom metal band hopped off the stage and started singing electronic songs and their wigs came off. That was the whole, that was the whole like inspiration for this. And it was really fun and really funny. And like everyone kind of, everyone kind of like went from sort of like being in the back of the bar, half paying attention to like participating and dancing and stuff. Right. We didn't keep the doom metal thing, but we kept the, electronic element and so for a while as a three-piece with adam me and bob we would we would kind of mix it up we would have like we would do some of our punk songs we wrote more and then we would do some synthesizers uh, you know ipod songs where we all got off the instruments we would do different iterations of it like maybe we would do half and half or maybe we would do a few songs this way a few songs on the ipod then back on the instruments we like mixed it up and Bob, you know, as demonstrated on Jeff's record, is a rapper too. So he dug up some of his old rap songs. So he would do some rap songs. So he had, you know, something to do too in the iPod sections. He would rap. Uh, sometimes he would freestyle. Like we we made a whole bit about him freestyling where it was like, Bob can rap about anything. Like we made it sound like it was the biggest deal in the world. And we would like get suggestions from the audience and they would always say things like cats or like hot dogs or, you know, like dumb things. And he would start freestyling about these topics. Oh, and then we made a we made a um, rap contest. That was always funny. We were like, Bob can out rap anybody. You know, we need a volunteer, and so somebody would volunteer to freestyle against Bob. We always we always said that Bob won no matter what, even though he he, tech, he probably did win most of the time. But it didn't matter how good the <laughs> it was always Bob. Bob wins. It was always Bob wins. So where did the whole concept of we are all Narboots come yeah, in to so play? Eventually, Bob decided that he you know was he he. He was done with the band. It wasn't like anything personal. Just I think he was. He kind of saw that we were pushing more and more in the direction of the iPod and wanting to do the instruments less, and we were pushing more into like weird theatrical elements. So he's like, "I think you guys are probably. It's probably like your guys' band. It's cool. I got other things I'm, I, I'm focusing on." When it became just Adam and I, we we really stopped. We didn't play instruments anymore. Once we did that, yeah, we were we were thinking more in theatrical terms. We were thinking Adam started bringing like a smoke machine. We started bringing props. We would bring in like drums and, and get audiences to play drums. We did start having like friends play back us with drums and different things, but it wasn't like we never played instruments again, Adam and I. And it was always like a whoever wants to do this can, but it's not really needed. We did have a, we did have an old song called We Are All Nar Boots. But yeah, it became more and more of a theme and more of more of like since we're creating a theatrical performance. And we're in the audience and we're trying to get the audience to participate in some capacity, whether it's by them dancing or by them playing drums with us or by whatever it is we're trying to get them to do. We were trying to create this this, this uh, show where the audience was like just, a, just as much part of it as we were. 
And so that's why it was like, we are all in our boots. That was what we are on. All in our boots was about was that like, we're all the band, you know, we're all part of the band. You're not watching the band. You're participating with the band. There was a, there was a few times where that got taken pretty far. I was thinking about some of our weirdest shows. There was a show we did at Gilman. I, I like fractured part of my foot. It wasn't a big deal, but I, I had to wear like a, a boot for a while. So I couldn't really do Narboot shows like I was used to, which was involved a lot of like dancing, a lot of like just going crazy. We tried to think of a way to accommodate to that. So we tried to go real low key, having everyone sit. Adam had for a while been bringing this giant parachute where we would try to get dance parties under the parachute, but we kind of like utilized that differently. We would try to like make all the songs really quiet and everyone talking and, and sitting like underneath the parachute really intimately. It just like the idea evolved more and more and more into this sort of like cult vibe. <laughs> and it like, it was really far. It was really funny how far it went. Cause we, we had like everybody write their name on a piece of paper. And at the end they had to come on stage and put their name into this jar and like s- say that I am no longer Aaron. I am Narboots. And everyone did it. And they did it very passionately. And then we all got on stage and like sang some song acoustically together. And it was all a joke, but it, like for a moment, it kind of felt like it's kind of not a joke. Like it's kind of like you can kind of see how like cult logic works. Yeah. How like easy it is to get people, people. on board. Yeah. And I was like, wow, if we, if we were like, if we weren't like joking, if we were serious, like I don't even know how far this could go, how far we could go to get people to participate in this, like letting go of your ego and you're part of this. Thing now, so I love that mindset though behind it. The whole "we are all Narboots." It's not just, "Hey, you're watching a band on stage." It's we are all participating. Yeah, I love that mindset so much. And we've discussed this, and you even mentioned it in your book as well. Uh, you credited it to someone else. Yeah. So Dan Dan Deacon, yeah, who's a you know exactly where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. Dan Deacon is a pretty well known, famous uh, electronic kind of musician. He started telling me all this stuff, which I related to from Narboots, but I wasn't prompting him to say this. This was just his philosophy about the audience being part of it. So I used several quotes of his. I was What I was trying to get at with him was like, he was in a ska band for a number of years. You know, it was called Channel 59. They were like, not like a bigger name nationally, but in the Long Island ska scene in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were kind of one of the bigger bands. So if you talk to somebody who grew up in Long Island and went to ska shows, they totally know who Channel 59 is, totally removed from the fact that the singer of that band ended up becoming famous. We were ta- I was trying to get at like what was like what was it like having this sort of ska formative years? How did that inform you becoming a musician in this other genre? And that was kind of what he was getting at. It was like ska encourages this notion that the the uh, the energy of the audience is an important component that the band feeds off the audience that their participation is a, is a key role to it. That's where he was kind of taking becoming electronic artists. Cause I think a lot of people who get into electronic music, I don't know that they necessarily view it that way. They kind of see as like, I'm, I'm DJing music for people or I'm like spinning records or I'm programming and stuff. But he kind of saw like the role of like making sure the audience was part of it. And I think he had a good quote about how um, in the world of sports, people think in terms of we, like our team won, our team lost, and, you know, we won, we lost. But like how music, they don't think in terms of like 
we put on a good show. And like he, he was trying to encourage that mindset with his audiences. And I love that mindset. And it seems to be that Narboots really implemented that mindset, whether you were aware of it or not. Like mm-hmm. that's, and I love that so much. And I feel like a lot of the modern ska resurgence, if you will, a mm-hmm. lot of people haven't been paying attention to the genre, but this huge boom of new tone bands that's really what's happening. It's less of, hey, we're going to a ska show and more like we're going to a ska party. And because the communities in every scene, in every city for every scene, you know, the Bay Area and Sacramento scene really cross over a lot. The Southern California ska scene is all down there. And, you know, every city you go to, it seems like it's just always one big party. It's it's yeah. less of just, hey, we're going to go see a band. It's, whoa, we're all having a great time and everybody knows each other and everybody's having a fun time. There's people on the stage that aren't even in bands and there's people off the stage that are in the bands and everyone's just kind of conglomerating everywhere. And that's one of my favorite things about the ska community. And I feel like more concerts need to be doing just kind of in general, implementing the whole audience participation and really going in on that because I think that is one of the greatest elements to live music is just participating. I think the 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 component where it's a scene, I think it really helps that you know, and I think that's probably true in other scenes. It does foster community, and and that community it, it creates something beyond the music and beyond the individual show. It's cool that in today's world where people are getting to know each other online and stuff, which is a different environment than when when I was younger, and I felt like you know you kind of got to know the people at the scene itself, but you're kind of getting to know the people online and then you're kind of meeting in person it's a different but it kind of ends up equaling a same a similar version of what i remember and that's just like the community element it's kind of cool to me to see that you know as a person who's like almost 50 seeing that like this concept of scene exist in different iterations yeah and i think that's definitely a helpful tool is the social media because I can become friends online, internet friends with all these people. And then when we actually meet in person, it's like, hey, we know each other, which is kind of how you and I ended up meeting. Mm-hmm. We knew each other online. We interacted a little bit here and there. And then we met yeah. at a show, yeah. which was super awesome. And then it's all just downhill from there. All downhill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, is there like a favorite concert that you have ever been to? Like, it's just like, holy cow, this is like a perfect lineup or it's like, this is my favorite band and they put on like the greatest show ever or just anything thereof, like a favorite show that just really kind of stands out in your mind. Yeah, I think my favorite show I ever went to was um, when I saw Weird Al at the uh, Mountain Winery that's in Saratoga. And um, it was probably like 2012, somewhere in that range. Okay, so he was on his Alpocalypse tour. (laughs) I don't know exactly, but it was in the early 210s, I think, because I, I know I was I was uh, I was working at I was doing journalism at the Metro and my editor, we would we would like bond over Weird Al. And so he like got us tickets through the paper. So and, and it was like they were good seats. So we got to like watch Weird Al and, and the Mountain Winery in Saratoga. I don't know if for anyone who hasn't been there, it's a very fancy venue. It's like an outdoor arena. It's in the mountains of Saratoga, which is a very nice, very wealthy area. It's an actual winery. It's probably only a few thousand people. Really good sound. Tickets are usually really expensive. <laughs> I have seen a handful of shows there. I don't know if I ever paid for them. I think that was one of the few perks at the paper I really enjoyed was getting to like request tickets there. So yeah, Weird Al, I probably have seen him in the 90s or something. I can't remember. But at this point in the 2010s, he's like... He sort of reestablished himself or he's 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 
he's established himself as a legacy act at this point. I don't know oh, exactly absolutely. when that happened. I know there was there was some up and downs in his career, but at a certain point, he's he's Weird Al. He's a legacy act. He has a really really intense fan base that I don't think enough enough people really talk about. So, okay, yeah. so hold on. This guy that you're talking to right now with the two thumbs, Robert, here. <laughs> if people were to ask me, what are your top three, five favorite bands? You know, it'll be some, it'll constantly rotate between, you know, Reliant K, Four Year Strong, Descendants, Five Iron Frenzy. Yeah, there's, it just, it ebbs and flows depending on the time. But people that really know me know that I am obsessed with Weird Al Yankovic. And people are like, how come you don't even talk about him in like your top three favorite acts? It's like, cause he's beyond. favorite he's 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 obsession like when my wife and i started dating that was one of the things i'm like dude you gotta get used to this like this is one thing that's not gonna change and she's like what are you talking about went through showed her like every single tv show he's ever been featured in and like all these youtube videos and the whole weird owl show like i just took her down this weird owl rabbit hole and she's like cool now i know a lot about it and now i know something you love and i'm like this is never gonna stop i'm telling you right now and it it still hasn't, and she's become since you know a fan. She likes his music. She's not like obsessed with him like I am, but she'll come see him live with me, and it's always a great time. But yeah, this guy, he's obsessed with with Weird Al yeah, Yankovic. Yeah. It's great. So you saw him on his uh, Alpocalypse tour in yeah. 2011. So yeah, I mean, I think, and this is probably a speech you've given to your wife before. Whatever you think of his music, if you listen to his music uh, on CD or not. He puts on a show that is phenomenal. Absolutely. And especially at this point, you know, once he, once he's done it long enough, he's figured out how to do a good show. I don't think there was an opening act when I saw him at this particular show. He's only ever had three opening acts across his whole career. He's had Mustard Plug. Mustard Plug. Open yeah. for him. He's had <laughs> he had a comedian at one show that was forced upon him via the venue and he was a very raunchy comedian, and we do not bring him up. And Weird Al got really mad, and he like kind of kicked him off the stage. And then in recent years, he's had Emo Phillips, the comedian, yeah. opening for him on his most recent tours. Uh, those are the only opening yeah. acts he's had. Yeah, I saw him right before the pandemic. I saw him when he did the uh, self-indulgent tour, I oh, think it was called. yeah, yeah where he's emo. just playing the, the deep cuts. Yeah, and those emo. are great. That was, uh, I know we're sidetracking here, but Emo Phillips, who I remember you know loving Emo Phillips as a kid, but it's funny watch him um in in like 20 2019 or whatever it was it's like every single joke i've heard before yeah same here but it's still kind of funny it's still funny <laughs> i still end up cracking it's cool because on those tours he was still telling new jokes that i'm like i haven't heard these i've seen him live more than i've seen any other comedian live he is my favorite comedian and so the fact that he's telling new jokes on these tours i'm like this is insane that he's still doing it it's crazy and i love him so much so yeah, um, the cl- the the classic, you know, Weird Al set where it's like he plays the hits, the parodies, is a phenomenal show because it's hours long. He does costume changes. He has video interludes in between the sets. It's a spectacularly entertaining experience. It's one of the few times where, in modern years, I have not felt bored. For the entirety of the evening, like I have not been like, okay, well, like looking at my phone or whatever. It's just like, you're just, it's cause it's just moving along. He does a song, he comes out, he's dressed a different way. The videos come on. The videos are so funny. They're from his entire career. It might be like 
a clip from UHF or it might be like um, when he so, did those fake interviews with people like oh, Eminem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just what, or like a clip ran... of him, his name being me- uh, featured in like 30 Rock yeah, or exactly. like he made a cameo in the middle or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's so, it's so fun. I like, I would recommend anyone, even if you just can't even stand listening to his music, it's such an entertaining show. And I didn't realize, cause it'd been a while since I'd seen him. I didn't realize how much he had perfected his live show. So I was so entertained. I was just like, yeah, that's probably the most fun I'd ever had. I've seen him since then a few times, and they've. I, I wouldn't say that it was better or worse. I just think that first time of seeing him in the modern era, unaware of how good it was going to be, probably tops it. It's magical. It's absolutely magical. And it's really cool that he does play these really nice venues, and they're huge. The last time I saw him was at the Mondavi Center in Davis, and that place mm-hmm. is like where like you go and see like concert choirs and like cl- <laughs> classical music, and it's like he's playing here, and it's like it's a beautiful venue. The acoustics are insane. It's huge, and like the time before that, like times before that, I saw him at Roanhurst Park at some college at their mm-hmm. like their music production stage, and that was another one of those where I'm like, this venue's huge, and it's just like beautiful. I couldn't comprehend it, and. Yeah, he, yeah, he's so great. I remember, like, uh, it was one I missed, but it was like sometime in the late '90s or early 2000s. Like, he was like came through town back when I lived in the South Bay, and it was like he was playing the the Santa Clara County Fair. Oh yeah, a lot you know? of people around here that have seen Weird Al saw him at the county fair, whether it's Santa Clara yeah. or Sacramento or wherever. So I feel like you know that that kind of shows that he kind of had a perceived dip, or you know, he had a dip in popular appreciation. He was all over MTV in the 80s and early 90s. And then I think people were like outgrew Weird Al, you know, but I think they came back to him and more more new generations. Kids yeah, yeah. Now, now people are more obsessed with him than ever. Yeah, yeah, Pop exactly. culture icon. It's an interesting thing to watch that that career, because I mean, yeah, in the 80s, especially I feel like really in the 80s when he was like doing Michael Jackson and Madonna, he was like parodying all the like major stars and his videos were played significantly on MTV. I mean, his videos are really good. That's another that's another form of entertainment I would recommend for somebody. Sit and watch the Weird Al videos because they are so, so funny and so like so thoughtfully made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of production work that goes in behind the scenes, too. And he really pays attention to the art that he's parroting to make sure he gets it just right, too. Yeah. It's awesome. That's that's high on my list. A few others that I saw just kind of rattle off that are like high for me was um, I saw Tom Waits. Whoa, that's cool. At the Fox Theater in Oakland. This would have been in probably early 2000s, I think. Adam and I, we both saw Fugazi in Watsonville in 99. That was like a show we still talk about. It was at the Veterans Auditorium. Was that like a VFW hall? Yeah, basically. It was funny because they were, you know, as big as they were ever were at that point, 99. They, I saw them in Watsonville. And then like the next night they played the Trocadero in San Francisco, which is a straight up normal venue. Yeah. But the this VF hall show in Watsonville, which is not even a town that has shows to speak of under normal circumstances was the absolute better of the two. It was phenomenal. That's interesting. Yeah. So was it like really, really packed in there? Oh, it was crazy packed. Everyone I knew that was part of the ska, punk, whatever scene, every single person was at that show. So it was, it was really interesting because it was at a VF hall too. It had like that, it had that sort of more punk vibe to it than the, the Trocadero was a little bit more like we're older punks and we're, catching up on a band that we love, like kind of vibe to it. 
which wasn't as fun. I don't know. It just wasn't, it just didn't have the same energy to it. Yeah. I think probably, probably the most amazing skink and pickle show I ever saw aside from the first one was, um, when I, when I roadied for them on tour, they played a uh, first Avenue in Minneapolis, which is, um, first Avenue is famously Prince's club. It's a pretty large venue. Purple rain was filmed there. Okay. And, uh, it was fit like 1500 people. They sold that out like in advance. It was a pretty amazing, like energy at that show. And it was also a moment for me where I kind of realized just how big skank and pickle were at that point. And like 95 felt like they were about to get a lot bigger, but the band sort of imploded at that point. Yeah. And the slapstick, uh, they were, they were one of the opening acts on that tour. They showed up late because <laughs> they had <laughs> van problems and they ended up playing after skank and pickle. And Mike like told everyone, you know, stick around. And uh, yeah, the, the audience stuck around slapstick played like a short, but awesome set. Oh, that's cool. Wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, Skink and Pickle, absolutely legendary band. And I know that they're your favorite ska band, so it's really cool that you've been able to see them so many times and grow up with them and see them at Intimate and bigger venues and all sorts of kind of shows like that. That is that is just so cool. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like flew by, dude. <laughs> it's just insane. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the best part about doing this, though, is that I love talking with people so much about live music. And we didn't even get to all the questions that, uh, that I wanted to ask you, but... You know, you know what that means is I just got to have you back for a part two sometime. All right, part two coming up. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Where can people find you on the internet if you so want them to? If you would like to follow me online on social media, at In Defense of Ska is on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. My website is Aaron-Carnes.com. I also have a Substack, which I'm, I'm hoping to get become more active as the year progresses. Just Aaron Carnes, I think it's it's. There's a link to it on my website, so those are probably the main the main areas you can uh, kind of follow along with me. I have a the second edition, second expanded edition of In Defense of Scars coming out in October. Okay. Yeah. Uh, pre-orders cool. are going to be up, so it should be active as we speak. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, you can find if you want to follow this podcast on social media on Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle at at Barricade Pod. So it's at symbol at Barricade Pod. I know it's double at, kind of confusing. Uh, Facebook, we have a Facebook group at The Barricade Podcast. And if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, it's at Robert Music Collection. Thank you guys so much for tuning into today's episode. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a blast. Thank you. We hope you tune into the next episode. Where we come